0: especially as a woman. These highly successful women will share strategies and insights, including what not to do and what it takes to win. And now here's your host, Jennifer Justice.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. I am Jennifer Justice. Today, we are going to talk about something that's important to all of us, and that is getting paid, executive <laughs> compensation. So I brought on an amazing uh, specialist in here, Regina Riedling. She is the a partner at Wild Gottschall, and this is what she specializes in. So I'm excited because everyone knows if you've listened to like, I'm very passionate about this and I'm passionate about women, hiring people to represent them, not negotiating for yourself. And we're going to talk about when you do it. Hi, how are you? Hi,
0: JJ. So happy to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you're here. So tell us a little bit more about your background and what you do, and then we'll get into the specifics.
0: Great. Happy to. So uh, my name is Regina. I'm a partner in the executive compensation group at Wild Um, I'm recently new to this firm. I, I started my career about 14 years ago at another white shoe firm in the executive compensation practice. And a lot of my time is spent doing m transactions, but within that context, really touching anything that impacts people. So it's equity compensation, it's you know, employee benefits, um, and a lot of what we're talking about today, it's employment agreements and how you think about going into an employment agreement on the front end. And frankly, you know, looking forward to what might happen on the back end when you're negotiating a separation or a severance agreement. So
1: let's, uh, let's unpack a little bit of that too, right? So people who are not going through this yet, but maybe will be going through this in five years. What do you mean by M&A? And give us an example of like some, you know, you can use fake companies, but like what that means.
0: Absolutely. So I do a lot of public company work. So companies that have, you know, securities stock traded on the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ. And when one company is looking to acquire another company, you know, there's a whole life cycle of work that goes into that. So, um, for instance, I just did a deal in the grocery industry where a big grocer has purchased another uh, competitor, frankly, in the field. And, you know, a big part of that work is first understanding, you know, what the target of the acquisition or the, the other side of the deal, you know, what... Employment arrangements do that they have for their employees. What type of equity arrangements do they have for their employees? So it's what we call kind of due diligence—really information collecting and helping my client understand, you know, the compensation and benefits landscape of, uh, you know, what the target that they're looking to acquire has. So it's really working with companies through the life cycle of um, exploring acquisitions. Uh, understanding what they need to do in terms of integrating compensation and benefits. Um, And then on the back end, once they've integrated things, you know, either rolling out new programs or, you know, new benefits for folks.
1: Right. Okay. Got it. And then when you're doing that, you're, when you're talking about the compensation, you're talking about only executives at the company, or are you talking about all the way down to, you know, hourly workers?
0: Yeah, and that's a great question. It totally depends. Um, you know, for example, I worked on the Amazon Whole Foods acquisition and um, at Whole Foods, they gave every single employee equity from the top all the way down to the bottom. So in that regard, it was a much broader population. uh, And thinking about, you know, how we treated those awards in the context of doing the deal. In other companies, it's much more, as you can imagine, concentrated at the top. So in that regard, we might be thinking about, well, you know, the senior team has equity, but we really need to keep everyone engaged for purposes of doing this deal. What type of retention awards and other bonuses do we need to put in place to incentivize people to, you know, act in a way we need them to act to get the deal done.
1: Right. Okay. So then let's just, let's go like deeper into executive compensation and these agreements, right. And the components of it, um, which I'm always like saying, as I said in the beginning, like You should have people negotiate for you. You should have, you know, especially if you're an executive, there's just, there's no reason you should be getting paid enough to be able to have this, you know, work. And then, you know, in addition to salaries, obviously there's other components, right. That you have to look, you know, at. So can you just start talking about the different components of an executive compensation, like package or agreement?
0: Sure. So when I think about um, an executive compensation package, obviously the first part is, is the comp. So what is the person getting paid? And in my mind, I I usually break that down into three components. You know, it's, it's salary. So what are you getting as, as your base salary? Uh, There's typically an annual bonus component or a quarterly bonus component, depending on the industry. And then the third piece of that is, is equity and, you know, a lot of times, that could be options. It could be restricted stock units, or it could be, you know, a type of equity award that has a performance overlay to it. Um, and again, that last piece really depends on, you know, the company, the industry, and what the, you know, what the employer has in place already.
1: Right. So a lot of tech companies have lower salaries. And then they give you equity.
0: Exactly right. But
1: equity is no compensation until it is compensation. Right. And yeah. even then right. it could be nothing, right?
0: Right. And that's a huge, I mean, look, that's a huge part of, you know, bringing in someone to represent you to understand, I think, one, just from a practical perspective, you know, what are the tax implications of the awards I'm getting? What is the likelihood of, you know, that me realizing value? what is the time horizon? What are the triggers? And also, you know, if things go poorly and I leave or I don't make it to the, you know, ultimate liquidity event, what does that mean for purposes of my awards? And those are things look on the way in, if you have some leverage, I think that's when you should be having those discussions, not on the way out when the relationship has soured and, you know, the facts are different.
1: All right. So when, when do you typically see, someone hiring an attorney or when, by the way, when in your opinion, should they be?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So look, I think a lot of times people in my experience engage an attorney at a point where it's a little too late. And and I can talk a little bit more about that, what that means. So I think in the, in the life cycle of doing an employment agreement, typically what happens is you have some type of you know, meeting of the business minds. So from a business deal, we know what the dollars look like. We, we kind of know what the, the broad sketches of the offer look like. And a lot of times those conversations are going on somewhat informally between the company and the executive. In my experience, usually before an, an attorney has been engaged, I think it's too late to engage someone after that stage because there are so many important terms, you know, on equity, on maybe certain protections around severance uh, that are usually on that sheet of paper. And, you know, look, I think there's always room for negotiation, but you're coming from a very different negotiating point if you can be having those discussions. And frankly, if you as an executive can have your attorney be having those discussions on your behalf.
1: Right. So, I mean, but to clarify, you should still hire an attorney because all of that other language, there's non-competes that aren't and non-solicitations that aren't even legal in some states anymore. But like you should hire one. But the whole point here is before you even have a conversation, when they put something in front of you or which they should never do, what do you want? Right. Right. Because in like now, New York, you there's they can't ask you what you made before. They also have to put what the salary range is now, yep. right, which just passed very recently. But in general, you should have somebody negotiating every single thing. You should not be naming what your price is. You should not be like going back and forth. You should engage someone.
0: Right. And, and I think that, and sorry to interrupt, but the, the benefit also is, you know, at the outset, I think people are always on good terms, but there there may be things that, you want or that are important to you, you know, you should be having those discussions with your attorney so that he or she can really go to ball, play ball with, with the other side, because a lot of times I know kind of where some of the pressure points are yeah. and I think it's important to strategize about how you want the negotiation to play out again on good terms, but you should have someone that's willing to kind of you push know, be the, the liaison and, and the go-between between, between what you want and the deal that you're negotiating for yourself.
1: Yeah. I find like when I have clients that are just fine with me, just going for it. Like I ask for everything, knowing right. I'm going to get half of it. Right. But if I only ask for half of it, then I'm only going to get a quarter of it. Exactly. Right? right. But exactly. I do that. Okay. You shouldn't do that as the executive. Let me right. do that. And I push, 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 push all the buttons. And then, you know, they go like, look, and half the time what happens Behind the scenes, like a lot of clients, you know, in particular women, like, oh, I want to be nice. I don't want to like push that. Like the other side is not going, oh, you know, they're going like, oh, they're calling me off the record and saying, OK, I'm not going to be able to get this. Mm -hmm. but like I'll be able to get this and like that's happened all the time off the record conversations where they're like okay how important is this because I just want you to know that that's going to be the hardest thing to do and I'll be like okay we'll push for xyz because I know that this is where it's gonna move the needle for them and I can see you know knowing them it's like maybe they want more money maybe they want a bigger title because they're gonna leave later you know all of which are important but like you're gonna get something Exactly. You know, exactly. you're already going down this road. They spent a lot of money to find the right person or, or they've already invested a lot of money in keeping you there. They're going to make it happen.
0: Right. And I think the other thing that we, we didn't talk about yet that we should is, you know, I, my sense is for people who may not be at the top executive level, they're like, well, do I really want to spend the money on an attorney and yes. the outset, right? <laughs> um, always spend the money it's worth always it
1: always spend the money always it's always money. worth it when and i, I think- tell all my clients it's like you i will get you more money so you won't even see that you're paying me
0: exactly and to be honest a lot of times one of those negotiation points should be for legal fees exactly so if you're an employee negotiating a deal there's always some budget maybe it doesn't cover the full amount but i think that's the best money you're going to spend is yeah.
1: Exactly. So what about now? I'm excited to interview you is because you represent the other side, too. So you represent individuals, but you also represent the companies. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of people get worried that the companies are going to be like, well, I'm not going to negotiate with an attorney. Because quite frankly, I had that happen to a client of mine. It was Condé Nast, and I'm going to put him on blast because it actually happened. They had an uh, in-house employment, not in-house, but they hired an executive recruiter. The executive recruiter wanted to only negotiate with my client and refused to negotiate with me. And she was smart because she'd been my client for a long time and had said like, no, I don't negotiate my own comp. And he wouldn't. And they rescinded the offer. I'm shocked. Yes. No, it's awful. Condé Nast. Awful, awful. This happened within this year. Awful. You should not be doing that to people. There's no way the top executives. And she was going to be a C-suite person in Condé Nast. And it's not okay to do that.
0: Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, look, you're right, is to have an attorney to, to have discussions that are a lot of times tough discussions to have. So that's, that's...
1: Have you experienced that in other companies of yours?
0: Yeah, I think, look, sometimes I think some of it is posturing, right? Look, like I said, I do a lot of company side uh, representations. It could be posturing, I think, but at the end of the day, you know, if, so i frankly, I've never had that happen. Right.
1: Okay, great. So obviously you don't represent Condé Nast. (laughs) So... (laughs) No, <laughs> But that—that that is, I—I I wanted to put that out there. I wanted because that was the exception. I have never in my twenty-plus year career have seen that either. And, right. I, and it's a—it's a grotesque. And the executive repru- recruiters should be ashamed of themselves as well yeah. for that because it's not okay. You should be able to represent yourself. You know, if you're good at your job as an executive recruiter, then you should be able to go against an attorney and and yeah. go up. But I've also had executive recruiters who try to force my clients to negotiate with them and keep saying, Oh, it's it's the most you're going to get most you're going to get. And it's just going to make them mad if you come in. And I came in and I got another couple hundred thousand dollars for my clients, you know, because it's all, it's posturing on their part as well. So, and they're always going to say that, you know, they're always going to say they don't have money and this is the top of the band and whatever. Don't listen to that. Yeah. You know, hire somebody to do it for you and push.
0: Yeah. And JJ, like you said, there are also, I mean, we talked a lot about the money piece, but there's so much else in yeah. a contract that is so important. And I yeah. think if you don't have a lawyer, a lot of that can get lost. So to your point, you know, reporting line, Judy's, and how those things play into, in severance on the back end. So for example, um, one thing that I focus on a lot in terms of negotiating contracts is, you know, what are the severance events? So if you get terminated without cause, meaning, you know, if you've, you know, frankly, if you're let go by the company for without having done something bad, committed a felony, you know, uh, had a me too incident, you know, that's typically a severance event. Well, on the flip side there is protection that we refer to as you know good reason protection which is basically you know a, a number of things that fall into a category of if your job has been changed in such a way where essentially your service relationship is different so that could mean that could mean someone changes your comp in a material way it could mean that you know you used to report to the CEO or to the board And now they've put someone in between. So you're not a direct report. Mm -hmm. It could mean that they've changed your title or, you know, the budget that you have authority over. Those things are, you know, can be reasons for you to resign and get severance very customary in you know, C-suite level agreements and, you know, different formulations of that protection are customary kind of the lower you go down the chain as well. But those are things that are negotiated on the forefront of putting together yeah. a contract. And you need to be having those discussions, you know, with your attorney to understand kind of, you know, what is important to me about, you know, is title important to me? Is reporting line important? You know, is my budget or my discretionary authority important? And, you know, you need to be having those discussions so that those protections can be appropriately woven into the contract as well. Yeah,
1: because oftentimes things like good reason termination that you, you know, your ability to terminate yourself because of these things have changed is not necessarily in the first draft of your contract.
0: That's right. And, and it's often not that. in a term sheet either.
1: Yeah, yes. or on a term <laughs> sheet. So you, they need to be added because they're quote unquote a material term, yes, you know,
0: absolutely. and
1: so you, you, you negotiate all the material terms, your compensation, how long you're employed, who you're reporting to, where your work. Your responsibilities, your severance—all these are material terms that you need to negotiate up front. And then when they get put in the agreement, that's not when you hire an attorney. You right. need to hire the attorney to negotiate for you, right. while like with all of these material terms. So yeah. that's a, a very important point.
0: Yeah, and then so, the other one I wanted to mention because I'm seeing this more and more, um, and I am by no means like an IP attorney, so intellectual property. But I think one thing, um, and it's uh, one thing that we're seeing a lot of is, you know, the line between what is mine as a personal matter versus what is mine as a professional matter in terms of social media presence is becoming very gray. Um, And, you know, there have been a number of cases where, you know, you've had pretty high level people, you know, leave a job and then have you know their instagram account or their twitter account come into question who owns that. And so again when you're negotiating a contract there are typically very broad provisions as to who owns the ip uh, that's created both you know when you may be employed you could be doing it on your off time if the contract you know drafting is broad enough it could capture a lot of that stuff. So you know especially for people who are in more of a creative field right. where social media presence is important It's something that I I, I would really caution people to focus on and to have an attorney who's, you know, whether it's having an employment attorney pull in a colleague who is an IP person and take a look at those provisions because it's super, super important. And again, just because of the way social media has become so important in so many fields now, it's, you know, a caution to people out there that make sure you have someone reading those provisions on your behalf when you're negotiating a contract.
1: Right. Right. No, that's very true, especially, yeah, with creatives in particular, it's a big thing. Um, Let's talk about another really massive component that is really difficult for people to understand, and that is the equity piece.
0: Sure, sure. I'm happy to. This is my favorite because I I do a ton of work in this field, obviously, and I think equity is probably one of the most confused elements of compensation, even for people who Who practice in this area because people use different terms to describe different things and it can get very confusing.
1: Right. Great. So can you just break down, starting with the most 101, what does equity mean in a in a compensation agreement?
0: Sure. So I guess from really taking a step back just generally, you know, a company is owned by its stockholders, right? That's the ownership or the capitalization of the company. Equity awards are essentially, you know, a derivative of ownership. So the thought there is, you know, while you you have management leading a company, you want their interests to be aligned with the other owners of the company. And, you know, the way you deliver that ownership is through an equity award. So for purposes of an employment agreement, there can be numerous buckets of types of equity, meaning, is it a stock option? know, a restricted stock unit, or the contract could just speak to, you know, you're getting a big award at the time you, you know, join and commence employment with the company. And it also may address, you know, your right to awards every year, is there an annual component of of the equity award? So there, you know, there's lots of different buckets, and there can be lots of different types of equity that you may be entitled to.
1: So break down what the difference is, like what's an option versus a restricted stock unit?
0: Sure. So an option is essentially a contractual right for you to buy a share of stock at a designated stock price at some time in the future. So just generally speaking, if you know, you're know you joining a company and at the time you're joining the company, the fair market value of the stock is $10 you know, as an employer, I would say, you know, we're so going to have you here are 100 options, they're at a strike price of $10, meaning, you know, you have a right to buy 100 shares of stock at $10. The key is, there's, it's sometime in the future, you don't get that right, always, you know, up front, you typically have to stay for, you know, you vest, or you have a right to to actually exercise that, that option, let's call it, you know, after the first year, 25% after the second year, and so on and so forth. You know, the goal being that, you know, you stick around, you're helping the company drive value. So at the end of the vesting period, you know, the stock price is worth, you know, $25. So that you can then recognize the value between the $10 exercise price and the fair market value of $25 when you exercise.
1: Right. And so... That means it vests over a certain period of time. So when, you, uh, when people hear that term, it's, it's vesting. So that, you know, and it goes over a period of time that if you don't stay, it doesn't fully vest, right? That's and right. these are all terms that sometimes you can actually negotiate.
0: Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And so you can
1: negotiate. I always try to get some upfront the day they start, you know, right. and, you know, vesting period, a shorter period of time.
0: Right. And, and- I think another really big add value on, you know, the equity component, especially like if you're at a startup, you know, vesting over four years might mean nothing, right? Yeah. There might not be any type of real, you know, in that context, you're typically not exercising, because you would have to come out of pocket and, and pay the exercise price to receive the stock. Um, so really where the value in equity is at a at an earlier stage company is the ultimate exit event when that company is either purchased or there's an IPO. And I think what's important to think about in that regard is, you know, if I'm not there on that day, what has happened to my equity? Because mm-hmm you know, you may vest over four years, you may hold vested awards, that's great. But then the contract might say, if you leave, you have 90 days to exercise. Mm -hmm. Well, 90 days is not a very long time when you're thinking about a horizon of much longer for a liquidity event. Um, So it's just, you know, these are things that we should be thinking about, you know, kind of going into the deal. To your point, you know, what's the vesting? Can we negotiate having a slug up front? You know, what are we looking like on a termination? Can we Hold, you know, can we hold the award? Can we? Can we exercise? If we exercise, can the company buy me out? You know, there's all these questions that come into play, and those are oftentimes, you know, the important pieces that, to your point, can be negotiated when you're coming in the door.
1: Right. And so it can be great. It can be a massive value. I think there are a lot of people who worked early on at Uber and Facebook and all of these companies that, you know, Amazon and Google that did really well. But, you know, you can come on later and not do so well. If you're We yeah. WeWork, you're not so happy, right. you know. Um, but then the other thing you have to understand is if there's not some kind of li- liquidity event and you are getting it as, you know, like, talk about the what happens when you have to exercise and the taxable, you know, to come out of pocket. Can you go into the details on that a little more?
0: Sure, sure. So, I think, yeah, that's a, a huge thing that people don't realize. So, if you have options and you choose to exercise, you know, outside of a liquidity event, again, putting aside some nuances that the award could have, what that means is you actually have to, you know, pay cash to exercise the option. Uh, and typically the the difference between the stock you get and the price you're paying is ordinary income. So you have to pay tax on that. And, you know, it, again, there are some nuances with certain awards, but, you know, you then would have a capital gains expense again, down the road if there, if there was a liquidity event. So you need to be mindful of, you know, kind of tax upfront in terms of what, we call ordinary income or the compensation tax could be, uh, and then the consequences down the road, you know, if there is a liquidity event and you continue to hold that stock.
1: Right. So overall, you know, look, it's great to have equity, but don't sacrifice your salary for it That's because right. you don't know. It's so speculative. Yeah, You don't know. What's going to happen down the road? And maybe if you can afford it and you're like, seeing how the management is run and you're a part of, you know, the executive team and seeing that there's potential buyers, et cetera, you might feel differently than if you're someone who's in the weeds and just, you know, you know, have nothing to do with where that company is going and have no real visibility in that, you might think differently about it. Um, So let's just give like an, like a tactical example. If somebody has an exercise price of $10, Hmm. they get a hundred shares, right. And, and then they decide to leave and they vested a hundred percent of it. Like what that means.
0: Yeah. So I have to now remember the math here. So they have 100 options at a strike price of $10. So if they wanted, if they were fully vested in those awards, and wanted to exercise, they would have to come out of pocket and pay 10 times 100 or Mm $1,000 to hand over to the company to buy those shares. They would then, you know, receive equity, you know, it could be, Let's call it. It's at twenty dollars at the time, and they would then recognize a, a tax impact of the difference between the. I guess it would be two thousand dollars minus one thousand dollars they paid, so there'd be a tax recognition event upon the exercise where they'd have to pay tax on that um, that a thousand dollars. And I think what's difficult is that you know in certain contexts, for example, in public companies, it's quite common for the for to to net the tax out of the shares because there's liquidity on a a public market and there's a market for those shares that's less common in a private company context so you may be in a situation where you have to actually come out of pocket and and pay tax in addition to the a thousand dollars you've paid to buy the shares
1: right so you have to think about it it's like I've just paid for these pieces of paper, right? right? And then now I have to pay taxes on the pieces of paper in a private company. I still can't do anything with them. That's right. So I'm coming out of pocket for taxes on something that is quote unquote worth, you know, two thousand dollars less the thousand I paid. So I've made a thousand dollars, but in paper, but it's not like I can go to the bank without a thousand dollars, that thousand right.
0: really dollars. <laughs> and
1: going forward, I could go back down. Right? right. It can go bankrupt. So I'm I'm taking those, those chances. So you just need to be aware. It's like I just want people to understand that there are there could be negative things that happen. Right. And so, you know, with employees, a lot of times, you know, there is this, you know, liquidity event, meaning, you know, they sell the company and then everybody gets paid out right. or they go public. And then, you know, there's usually the some market. kind of. Restriction yep. where you have to wait 180 days yep. and then you can get you can cash out all your stock, right? But in a private company, you know, it's a lot harder because you're just holding on to this thing, hoping one day you can cash it in and make your money back on the right. taxes that you already paid for it.
0: Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. But I think, <laughs> you know, to kind of bring this full circle back to our, um, our talking about the employment agreement, you know. For example, if I was negotiating for an executive in this context, I would try to negotiate one for, you know, net tax withholding and net exercise, meaning, you know, basically put that executive in a position where, you know, they don't have to come out of pocket for with cash for that exercise, and they don't have to come out of pocket. Um, It's really putting it on the company to, to net out the shares that they would have to pay for the exercise price and net out the shares that they'd have to pay for the tax. So, again... Still speculative, and and I agree with everything you said, but, you know, if, if you're thinking about this in terms of representing someone and negotiating a deal, there are little, you know, tweaks we can make around the edges to hopefully make that economic situation, you know, better for the executive.
1: I just, can you, can you make sure you're like super clear on the net exercise, what that means exactly?
0: Sure. So in the example, we talked about someone having to come out of pocket for, you know, $10 ten dollars to exercise one option. And what net exercise allows you to do is say, well, instead of me paying ten dollars to buy a share that is now worth twenty dollars, you know the, I will let the company essentially look at the value of the shares that I would have purchased and you know deduct from the shares that would be delivered to me, you know, enough shares to cover the exercise price. So if I were exercising uh, an option and, you know, getting, let's call it two shares and, you know, each share was worth $10 and my exercise price was $10, well, instead of me paying and getting two shares back, I would not pay and just get one share because the company would essentially net out the amount I would have paid from the value of the stock and that's you know meaningful because you're still in the same economic position but you're not having to come out of pocket to you know buy the shares.
1: And do you see companies agreeing to that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think look again it's less common in the private context but you don't get it if you don't ask for it. So Right.
1: Right. And what about the taxes then? How do you deal with the taxes in those situations? It's
0: the same, look I think it's the same thing. You know, you see this both in the stock option context but also you know in the companies I represent you know, we talked a little bit about um, restricted stock units um, and that those are very customary awards where very simply, it is essentially just, again, a right to have a share delivered to you in the future. So again, you know, I have to work four years and I'm going to get 25 shares in year one, 25 shares in year two. So there's not that that exercise construct built in. It's a, it's a full value award. And again, you know, for a person in a private company context, when you receive those awards, it's a taxable event to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you don't want to have to come out of pocket and pay the taxes, you could try to negotiate with the company to have them essentially, you know, net settle that award. So as opposed to getting 25 shares of stock, I might only get 15 and essentially the, the 10 are taken by the company and cash is paid over to the government on my behalf. Right. So, you know, those
1: That's are the important part is it's not like they're just giving you less. There's still an accounting provision to the tax to the IRS and for taxes for you. That happens on the back end from the company. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. And they do take it on. It's not like it's unusual. These, these are right. things that actually happen.
0: And they don't want to look at the- Again, from representing a company, they don't want to agree to do this for everyone. A lot of times, right, because it it goes to their cash flow. But if you're, you know, an important hire and you have someone representing you that points this out in the front end and says, you know, we should be asking for this because, you know, you don't want to be strapped, you know, five years from now having to come out of pocket for this. You know, oftentimes you you can get a company to agree to this.
1: Right. Right. Amazing. See, there's all these things you can do if you just hire
0: an attorney. That's right. That's right.
1: And then, so what other than all of these, are there any other mistakes you see the executives making when you're like on the other side going, God, they really should have asked for this? Mm
0: -hmm. That's a great question. I think, um, you know, there's really pieces around the edges that I think people forget about. So just going back to compensation and thinking about um, the annual bonus. So, you know, an annual bonus is a pretty customary concept, um, and a lot of times, you know, for higher people coming into the C-suite of a company, you know, you'll have what's called a target. So the target might be a hundred percent of your base salary. Um, I think one thing that is oftentimes missed is, you know, at the front end, really crystallizing what the performance metrics are going to be. Are they, you know, fifty percent? financial based and 50% or discretionary, you know, what is that mix? Who's deciding it? You know, when are they telling me what the what the metrics are? So, you know, a lot of times having those conversations up front, and really putting that in the contract can can put some protections around the individual so that they know, you know, this isn't just some totally like discretionary award as to, you know, how the CEO is feeling on the day that he or she makes that decision. You know, it's, you know, even of, you know, know, 25% sales, and then 25%, you know, individual contribution. So I think that's, you know, a big piece. And then I think the other piece, you know, we mentioned the IP, which I really think is important.
1: Yeah.
0: And then again, I think there are also a lot of, you know, it's almost like the miscellaneous provisions at the end of the agreement that no one wants to look at or focus on. But these could be things like, you know, restrictive covenants, you know, what is the non compete? What is the non solicit? Is it a non-solicit of uh, customers or employees, you know, and how do you, you know, how do you think about both the, the term of those restrictions, but also, you know, how broad they are in terms of geography and covering other types of businesses and, you know, whether there should be carve-outs for certain things. Um, you know, those are, you know, really important provisions that, you know, you should be, you know, having discussions with your attorney about at, at the yeah. front end. Negotiating a deal, yeah.
1: Certain things like uh, it, one non-solicit is not allowed in California, and another one is. Which one is it again?
0: So the 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 customer and like client is is not allowed, and then employee non-solicit is. But there's you know, in California is you know a state where you should really have a California borrowed attorney in because there's so many nuances yeah. to the law there, and there you know there are you know non-competes are kind of on their face, not allowed. But again, yeah. there are exceptions to every rule and there's even an exception to that rule. So again, it's really important here you're in California to have someone that knows, you know, the, the law of the land uh, in that state.
1: Yeah, and not only that, like think about in the context of severance, like I've seen people who have, you know, they'll come to me, they're, they're, they've been in a company for a long time and then they'll come to me and like, here's my agreement. And I was like, oh my God, do you know you have a non-compete that exists, even if they fire you for no reason, <laughs> like right, and then you can't go work, and yeah. you have no like what like that's and and they don't have to pay you severance the entire right. time. There's non compete, like right. that's just crazy.
0: Right, there should and, really, I mean, there should real in my from my perspective, you know, there should always be symmetry. Yeah, between you know what is the sale? what is the length of severance. Um, yeah. And what is the rest of okay. period? Yeah. And a lot of times, people forget. Like, look, your severance could be tied to your base salary, but what about your cash bonus component? Shouldn't that be a factor in yeah. you know, what type of severance you're getting as well? Exactly. Um, so again, having someone representing you and having those conversations, which you know can get awkward and difficult, will you know pay off in the long run.
1: It's it could be awkward and difficult, maybe if you're the employee sitting on the sidelines, but it's not something that they have never heard before. Right, like they've all they've heard it before, and and the, they're prepared to talk about these things, right? You and know? so are
0: we, right? This is our job. Yeah. We have these discussions. Exactly. We have next.
1: all day. I have, I have what people think are super uncomfortable conversations and super stressful. I have like a Tuesday for breakfast. Like it's <laughs> totally fine for me. You know, I'm used to it. Like, yeah. And then we can talk about our kids after. It's like, this is what we do. And like, we're used to it. So amazing. Well, thank you. This has been awesome. And I like, I love talking about these things because I think it's really empowering for people to know what their rights are and what is going on in particular women. And that this is a total normal state of affairs. And companies expect these things, expect to have these conversations. So in somebody in a like prestigious, you know, big Wall Street firm who, you know, basically takes these hard-nosed positions, they still are like, yeah, of course we have these conversations all the time and are representing, you know, our companies against executives or executives against companies. Um, So thank you so much, Regina, for all of this. Um, I always ask one question at the very end, um, which all of my guests know, and that is what is the worst advice you've ever received?
0: Wow. So I think the worst advice I ever received um, was probably not to trust my gut, not to trust my instinct. <laughs> um, I, just to tell an anecdote about this, I, you know, JJ, I mentioned to you, I, I left my previous firm, I was relatively junior and I went in-house. And looking back, I knew literally the day I set foot in that, that office, my first day of work that I had made a mistake in going in-house because it had felt um, it just had felt off to me the entire time, and i I knew I shouldn't have done it, but i I let a lot of other things get in my head and you know thought for various reasons it was the right move um but if I had trusted my gut i you know i I would have never taken that job
1: right, yeah, women's intuition, you have to right. trust it That's in right. all areas, personal, professional, and all uh, everything. That's well, right. thank you so much. This has been awesome. If people want to find you, how can they do that?
0: So I think the best place to find me is on the, my firm, the Wild website. You can search my name, Regina Reedling, and I'm there on the executive compensation page.
1: Amazing. Thank you. And to everyone listening to this episode, I'm sure you learned a lot. Me, even as a practicing attorney doing these deals, I always learn a lot. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Taking Care of Lady Business. I'm Jennifer Justice.